This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. I pulled out of the dive and I leveled off, but within a few seconds, I realized I, I was sinking. I had full power it was to the firewall and uh, as much pitch as I could get. And I was sinking maybe one or 200 feet a minute. It could have been as fast as 500 feet a minute. And I just headed for the airport and I knew that I wasn't gonna make it. I didn't have the altitude, I knew that. And that's the last thing I remember. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations, and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guest is private pilot John Berman. John's IFR rated. He's got over 1,500 hours of general aviation flying, a lot of it in a Cardinal aircraft, but then he stepped up to a Velocity XL aircraft, an incredibly capable long-range cross-country aircraft. Today, John's going to share a story with us of flying his Velocity XL when he got into some trouble near Santa Fe, New Mexico. John, welcome to the There I Was podcast. Thank you, Richard. So, John, these Velocity XL aircraft, they're incredible aircraft for people. They're a pusher aircraft. They can go 200 knots plus, 1,000, 1,200 miles of range, so an incredibly capable aircraft. On this particular sortie that you're talking about, you were flying from Liberal, Kansas to Santa Fe, New Mexico, and you got into a little bit of trouble with some weather and icing. Share with us your story, if you would. Well, sure. Um, it was January 15th. It was cold. In fact, the day before, I planned to leave the day before from St. Joe's, and um, I was having lunch in uh, Olathe, Kansas with a friend, and it went on the later side, and I was driving back to St. Joe's, and it was 4, 4.30, it was getting dark, it was cold, and I made the correct decision to bag it, to just forget it, it wasn't worth it. And um, ironically, <laughs> the next day, I, I, I made the wrong decision, and I crashed. But anyway, I left St. Joe's a little after noontime, and I intended to stop at Liberal, to get fuel and to rest. I'm a little unclear on how much time I spent in Liberal based on the timing of a phone call that I made when I first got there, which was to a Motel 6, which is where I should have stayed. Can I ask you, John, so normally if you were flying from St. Joseph to Santa Fe in a velocity, you could make that without a fuel stop normally, couldn't you? 600 mile trip. Is that correct or would you need a fuel stop in there? I'm not sure it was necessarily for fuel. Well, it was. I take it back. The fuel was part of it. But I also, um, well, first of all, I mean, I basically ran, when I wanted to go as fast as I wanted to go, it was uh, 180 knots at 13 gallons an hour. Um, 
more typically, I would scale back a little bit to 160 knots, and I could run at 10 gallons an hour or so. Got it. Okay. And I, I was quite methodical and meticulous about checking weather. Before every leg, with the exception of leaving Liberal, I would spend a minimum of an hour, and often an hour and a half and two hours, refreshing weather pages and checking uh, in, in, a, in a pretty methodical way how the weather was evolving. I was not lackadaisical at all about it. Mm-hmm. Ironically, when I left Liberal, I did next to no checking of the weather. Mm. I basically threw it all away. So you stopped in Liberal just for you could take on some fuel. You're going into Santa Fe, mountainous area, kind of late in the day on a cold winter day. So that way, it gives you some rest. You stop in the flatlands before you get to the mountains, and it just takes fuel out of the equation. Then you'll have plenty of fuel to get into Santa Fe, get a little rest halfway. So that's, that's kind of where your head was? Yeah, and also it was cold. And as I mentioned before, that the Velocity is a fine aircraft. It's a rear engine, and um, the main heat duct is on the the firewall in the rear. Getting heat up to the front is not its strong point. Mm -hmm. When I arrived in Liberal, I was very cold. I told the NTSB this. So cold that I immediately ran inside to the space heater to warm up my hands, and I deliberately, I didn't want to touch the, um, uh, my, my MacBook with the, uh, you know, the aluminum coating on it because I was just so cold. And I thought about this whole sequence of events a thousand times easily. And I believe that had I taken my MacBook in, which was my principal flight planning platform rather than just a cell phone, I would have rather quickly made the decision not to go. So in a way, the cold weather was, in a way, the the root cause of all of this. Got it. So on that trip over from St. John's to Liberal, how high were you? I don't remember. Okay. But it was cold anywhere at all altitudes, and so the velocity, as you described, not having great heat up to the front for you. So you're extremely cold, and that began to impact your decisions even in your landing at Liberal. You didn't take in your laptop, which you normally would, to check weather and so forth. What's on your mind is to get out of the airplane and try to get warmed up a little bit. Exactly. So you're hustling up a little bit as you're at Liberal. So from Liberal now, you know, you're inside, you're in the FBO, and pick it up from there if you would. Well, I got the crew car, and I drove to Walmart to get um, fried chicken and chocolate milk, which are my staples, <laughs> and also a couple of packs of hand warmers. I did not think, or I did not take my MacBook with me. Whether I thought about it or not, I don't know. But again, my a normal procedure would be to have it with me so I could be looking at it from time to time and just getting some sense of the weather and flight planning. I took a little nap in the car, a brief one. I drove to get a few more things to eat, And I remember coming back to the FBO and eating my fried chicken and chocolate milk in the kitchen and finishing up. I remember virtually every aspect of this because (laughs) at any point I I could have and should have made the correct decision to to go to the motel. So it was rather uneventful, except for the fact that I didn't have my flight planning materials with me. And I was paying very little attention, if any attention, to the weather during that time. So you had checked the weather for your whole flight to Santa Fe earlier at St. Joseph. You just didn't do an update at Liberal. Is that a a correct description? 
not to speak of. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. I did not have my laptop, so effectively I did none. Not as thorough as you normally do. Not at all. Right. Yeah. Okay. And you feel like that was a big factor in the outcome of this accident was that midway stop at Liberal not doing the normal thorough check that you normally do. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So what happened from there? You get back to the aircraft, or are you warmed up now and sort of ready for this next cold leg again? I was warm. I was putting a quart of oil in the velocities in the back, and the funnel that I normally used had cracked because of the cold weather, plastic funnel. And I went into the hangar, and I borrowed a funnel from the fellow and started pouring the, the oil into it, and it was very, very slow. And I only got a half quart in. I didn't, I didn't even need a quart or even a half quart. It was just a little bit of insurance. And as I told the NTSB, that was a clue that I ignored, that it's too darn cold. But instead of doing that, I returned the funnel. I climbed into the plane, and I left. And I was very strongly focused on getting to Santa Fe. The hangar there was about $25 in contrast to $75 in liberal. And I was had grown used to, gotten used to having the plane hangered, not having to de-ice it, which would take at least an hour. So, you know, those were the basic errors in not considering the big picture in addition to not having done the thorough weather checks that I had previously. And so you're anxious to get to Santa Fe because eventually you're heading out to see your daughter so you're trying to make some time on the trip. And in Liberal, the hangar rent was a little higher than you wanted to pay, and you didn't want to stay there for the day. You really wanted to make some time, get to Santa Fe for all those reasons. Correct. Okay. And uh, so then when you take off out of Liberal, you start heading to Santa Fe, and uh, how did it develop from there? Well, I remember the departure from Liberal. I remember making a left turn and heading southwest. I don't remember... As I've said, I don't remember the en route part until I made that descending 360 when I thought that I could not see out the front. I don't remember turning on my landing light to see whether there was, you know, uh, what was in front of me, whether there was I was in a cloud or not. I know I called ATC immediately, and they responded immediately. I remember that sequence. And I believe I also immediately put the, it's a center stick. I put the stick forward and to the left and made a descending left turn. I knew I wasn't over mountains there. So just getting down as quickly as possible, getting lower was, was a good decision. ATC told me to look out the left to see Tukumkari. I knew Tukumkari from many years ago when I'd landed there and I saw the lights. And I believe that I actually started to divert there. I don't know for sure. I don't remember. But the flight track shows me making initially a straight line, and but then I made a turn lower, and I was lower, and I kept on going towards Santa Fe. So, John, can I ask you, you're IFR rated, but your concern here is giving the temperature and the clouds and the moisture, you're, you're worried about ice. Is that right? Is that why you didn't want to penetrate those clouds? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. I would not fly into a cloud in winter. Period. Yep. Okay, so you're en route. You see what you think is weather coming up. It's cold. You know that there's moisture and potential for ice. So you start a left-turning descent uh, to try to stay in VMC conditions, stay out of the clouds. 
and towards Tucumcari, you can see the light. So by this time, it was it was dark. You were at night? Yes. All right. And so uh, pick it up from there. You're in this left-hand turn. You see the lights of Tucumcari, and then, and then what happened? Well, I apparently, I decided to go on. And when I look at the flight track, it looks to me as if I was headed towards the uh, Anton Chico Vortac along Victor 234. And then the flight track shows me turning, which looks on Victor 62, looks as if that's who I was heading, which is a very reasonable thing to do. I don't remember planning that. Um, I don't remember doing any planning, to be honest with you. But, you know, I, I did black out after the impact, almost certainly. But I, I definitely made a turn there very close to the Vortac. And I think I was following Victor Airways towards Santa Fe. Which would make sense because that would put you south of the higher peaks and following that Victor Airway into Santa Fe um, would, would be a logical choice to make, especially if you're trying to stay low and stay out of the weather. I, I think that's what I had in mind, but I can't tell you for sure. Mm-hmm. So as I told the NTSB, and this is all in the report online at, their, at the NTSB website, at some point, and the flight track kind of shows where things got squirrely, there suddenly appeared about a 12-inch diameter round blob of liquid on the windscreen. And I knew this was super-cooled water just because that's what it had to be. And first of all, I was over mountains, so getting down was not a simple – getting lower was not a simple matter. Right. But in my – what the hospital psychologist called uh, low-temperature delirium, which is a fancy term for hypothermia. My scientific curiosity got the better of me, and I just got closer to the windscreen to, to look at this blob. And within a few seconds, the entire windscreen iced over. And <laughs> that was sort of a, a fatal moment when I knew I was a goner, because mm. the velocity is, is, is a fine airplane. Mm. When I talked with my flight instructor quite previously about practicing seeing whether it would crab if you've got something, you know, front engine spitting oil on the windshield, and so you crab and you look out the side window. The flight characteristics are excellent on the velocity, but they're not standard. So because I had even texted with my flight instructor about, you know, we should do some practicing flight characteristics, I knew that even under the best of conditions with a blocked windscreen, I was not prepared to land by trying to crab on the velocity. Mm-hmm. And given the fact that I was over mountains and I knew obviously that I had airframe icing at that point, I just knew I was a goner. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I can just feel that tension, John, as you're coming in from that, from the Anton Chico VOR, you're headed into Santa Fe, but you've still got a range to cross there. And suddenly you get the icing on your windscreen. So, you know, if there's icing on the windscreen, very likely icing on my flight surfaces that I can't see, you can only go so low because the mountains are coming up to get you. And so now you're really in a bind here. You're picking up icing. You need to get lower, but you can't get lower because of the mountains. So what'd you do? Well, I didn't have time to plan because within five to 10 seconds, the aircraft pitched forward into a dive. Hmm. It, It was unforgettable. It felt like an extremely steep dive to me, and I saw the AI, you know, hard down, uh, the instruments telling me I'm going straight down into the mountains. 
And fortunately, due to good flight training and unusual attitude practice and that sort of thing, I didn't think for any uh, automatically, you know, it was mixture prop power. That was it. As fast as you can possibly imagine. And I pulled back on the stick slowly. And I, I had actually thought about this when I was in Boise a few weeks before when I was de-icing the plane, thinking to myself, gee, you know, if I pulled back on the stick really hard and the ailerons or the elevator or whatever, you know, the controls were had ice on them, it's not out of the questions conceivable I could snap a cable or some other flight control uh, component. Mm-hmm. So I remember very clearly reaching over with my left hand and my right hand on the center stick and pulling back quickly, but deliberately enough so it was smooth, so I wouldn't yank anything. And thank goodness I pulled out of the dive and I leveled off. But within a few seconds, I realized I I was sinking. I had full power to the firewall and uh, as much pitch as I could get on the velocity. And I was sinking maybe one or 200 feet a minute. It could have been as fast as 500 feet a minute. And at that point, you know, I had a map display and the big purple line towards the airport was there at about two o'clock. And I just headed for the airport and I knew that I wasn't going to make it. I didn't have the altitude. I knew that. And that's the last thing I remember. Hey, listeners, if you're a fan of aviation and this podcast, we hope you'll consider becoming a member of AOPA. AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the aviation industry and general aviation and supports our freedom to fly. Whether you're just getting started in aviation or have been flying for years, you'll find the resources and support you need to get in the air and keep flying with AOPA. Become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll join a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. Find out more at AOPA.org. So you had recovered from the dive, which was saved your life, but you were still in a descent rate given probably the ice buildup on the aircraft that even with full power and the stick aft, you weren't stalling. You just weren't able to maintain level flight. You were still in a sink of, of some of some level, 200 feet a minute or something like that. Exactly. And you turned towards the airport, but you basically then rode that in to the crash. Is that is that right? And I don't, I don't remember the impact. I don't remember the crash. Wow. Um, th- there is There are ATC communications where apparently I was very calm and I was <laughs> – Responding, you know, uh, my last call was um, to ATC, I can hear you, 7 Sierra Bravo, uh, trying to, attempting to maintain altitude. That was my last call, according to the, uh, the NTSB write-up. So I didn't lose my cool, apparently. Uh, no pun intended about the cold weather, but uh, I did crash. And then apparently I made a 911 call afterwards as well, which I don't remember. Tell us about the crash and the crash site. So what immediately comes to my mind is you were living that adage that we all learn and we hope we would live by if we ever had to do this, and that is what Bob Hoover said about flying the aircraft all the way through the crash. And that's essentially what you were doing and probably saved your life here, right? So I know you don't remember, but you had to be doing that. Tell us what you do know about the crash site and the scene and what happened after impact. 
Well, there are pictures from the rescue chief, and there have been a few online. It was um, an FAA investigator whom I've been in contact with uh, since, uh, kind of a friend of mine in a way. He and his partner rushed to my hospital room after I woke up. I was in a, a medical coma for two weeks with six surgeries. Um, I'm sorry, I, I'm a little emotional about this. Sure, understandable. Um, he, he said that the impact was on a slight upslope and the airplane came to rest 75 yards from the impact. And the last radar return showed 127 knots, which is just under 150 miles an hour. So if you think about that in terms of, you know, 75 yards in a football field, um, a whole lot of the energy went into um, breaking my legs <laughs> and back and neck. And uh, the composite body of the aircraft was actually remarkably intact, all things considered. So a lot of energy was lost in that initial impact on some kind of an upslope. And the, the final crash site looks relatively flat, but the terrain, according to the rescuers, was, was impassable in a number of places. Um, so that's really all I know about it. I don't remember making the phone call. I don't remember waiting for three hours. Um, not waiting. I mean, they were, they were doing everything they could to find me. I do remember seeing the rescue lights in the distance. I've described this. Mm -hmm. um, and knowing, excuse me, uh, knowing that they had to be coming for me. Uh, they said, um, they said that I, I really didn't have another hour. I was so cold, so hypothermic. Mm. So anyway, um, that's what I remember. And although I've got a lot of neurological damage and, uh, you know, I'm alive and um, somehow via astronomical odds, um, that, that's what happened. Tell us about your uh, recovery, John, and, and some of the consequences now. How You mentioned a broken back and broken legs. Have those, have those healed and some of the neurological damage? Talk to us about your recovery. Well, the, you know, I've read the surgical reports and, and in the hospital, one kind of couldn't believe it all, but my neck was broken. There was a nine millimeter displacement from one vertebrae to the next. And uh, according to all the docs, you know, had it been one more millimeter or so, I would be dead or on a ventilator. I seem to have some spinal cord damage from the neck in terms of uh, my, my hands my right hand in particular, but it's not all that bad, all things considered. Um, I had my L1 vertebrae was pulverized, as the, the surgeon told me later, and they rebuilt that. And they saw what the, the spinal nerve roots that come out of the, the vertebrae, some of them had been lacerated. So I've got considerable paralysis and uh, sensory compromise in my right leg. A lot of it the same in my left leg. I can walk, my balance is very poor, and I've fallen a few times. But, you know, compared to where I should be, which is gone, it's not that bad. 
and I've got a lot, of, lot to live for. Technically, I'm what's called an incomplete quadriplegic, which is a whole lot better than, than obviously being a complete quadriplegic. But what I'm hoping is that people, <laughs> pilots, can hear this and be reminded that flying in the wintertime is, is not child's play uh, under the best of circumstances. And certainly uh, not the circumstances that I was in. Well, let's go back and talk about that some a little bit, John, some of the lessons learned that come out of this scenario. And I want to start with a couple. The first one is to me that your your memory doesn't serve you well enough, but it, it just had what had to save your life to me was that that Bob Hoover adage that we all try to live by. And that is you you flew it all the way until you could fly it no more, including when you got into the stall, you didn't panic, you didn't snatch back on the controls and break them off. All that was present in your mind that you you were in a dire situation, you needed immediate critical action, but you did so in a very deliberate fashion to pull yourself out of that steep dive and then to maintain whatever control you could have and make whatever decisions were available to you all the way up to the crash site. And I think that presence of mind in that dire situation saved your life. I, I guess so, yeah. Um, the, as I said, the, the FAA investigator who came to my hospital room, <clears throat> God bless this guy, he said, you know, you sounded like Chuck Yeager up there. <laughs> I said, well, you got to be kidding me. But apparently, not, not like Chuck Yeager necessarily, but I was not panicking and I was, uh, I was communicating with ATC. So to the extent that bought me some leeway in terms of controlling the airplane and so forth, that, that's, that was a good thing. Do you think the, the first the dive that the airplane went into, the velocity, of course, is based on the long ease design. It has those canards up front, relatively large canards, that those canards must have iced over and lost lift, and that's what pulled you into that initial dive? It's certainly possible. That's where the elevators are. They're on the canard. Mm-hmm. That, that, that would stand to reason. I'm not sure whether under those circumstances that I would have been able to pull out of the dive. Mm, yeah. But, you know, it's well established, and AOPA does a fantastic job of analysis and advice and, and documentaries that airframe icing is highly, highly unpredictable. And, um, I mean, you know, it could have gone into a spin. And if that were the case, I wouldn't be here now. Yeah. I think the the second issue that I, I want to bring out to people that I think we probably don't spend enough time talking about, and that is the impact of cold temperatures on your cognitive ability. And you spoke to it. It was really the real big lesson learned to me that comes out of this is the impact of, of the cold on you for this entire flight, starting from when you landed in Liberal and you were so cold, you just wanted to get inside and get warm. So you didn't bring in your normal flight planning stuff. You didn't bring in, you were out of your normal rhythm. And whenever we as pilots, anything takes us out of our normal rhythm, our normal cadence, it's a yellow flag. We're starting to stack up some risk factors when we do that. Exactly. And so the impact of, of your cognitive ability when it gets cold. So it's not just the nimbleness of your fingers, it's the nimbleness of your mind. The research has shown that we tend to operate slower 
cognitively when we're in extreme cold temperatures. And the longer you're exposed to that temperature, the worse it gets. And so over the course of two flights and then some time on the ramp, you were definitely well into that span where your cognitive ability was impacted by the cold. Yeah, I completely agree. As I said, the hospital psychologist said the same thing. It was obvious to her. It was very clear to her that I was, I was, uh, had a big brain cramp <laughs> from the cold. Yeah. And then one of the yellow flags, but of course, it's kind of similar to alcohol and drunk drivers, right? The reason why we've learned that you have to put your keys away first or encourage people to do that is because by the time you start drinking, then you won't have the cognitive ability to know you have no business driving, right? Because the, the alcohol impacts your ability to think clearly. And so the, the cold or the chill is operating kind of the same way. So that, for example, when you were pouring the oil out on the ramp and the oil was so thick, that was one clue to you like, wait, hang on a second, man, you know, this oil is really thick. And then that you were in such a hurry that you didn't want to stay enough to get the whole quart that oh, half a quart will do and, you know, you stop there. And to me, both of those things are, as we can sit back now and look at it, we're all warm, drinking our coffee at zero knots in 1G. We say, yeah, that should clearly be a sign. But at the time, it's not for several reasons, one of which is your cognitive ability is now impaired. Yeah, exactly. And ironically, you know, I think had my daughter been with me, and I've described this, uh, she would have said, Daddy, it's too cold. Let's go to a hotel. And uh, that would have been the, the slap in the face that said, you know, what the heck are you doing? Go to the hotel. And that brings up another factor on this flight is it's just proven that having another objective person along with you that can challenge your decision-making, especially in these situations where, you know, you may be impacted by either time pressures or, you know, in this case, the cold or whatever is impacting your, your ability to think and make objective decisions. Having a second person there to question you is a proven safety advantage. And in this case, you know, you flew single pilot, like so many of us do all the time, that you're flying without that added benefit. So to your point, it would have been nice, but we all need to recognize many of us fly that way all the time. Yeah. I mean, uh, as I said to the rescuers when I went back to thank them a year later, you know, I said, uh, send it off in a letter or a text, text message to yourself. Why are you making this flight? And start with the, the negative aspects, the negative factors. I mean, you know, you can't talk yourself out of every flight, but, you know, this is a matter of piloting judgment, yeah. uh, which AOPA understands very well. Another lesson that comes out of this to me is night VMC and IMC and night VFR into IMC. So in this case, you're IFR qualified. You could have been on an IFR flight plan, but you didn't want to fly in IMC because of the potential for icing, right? But at nighttime, especially if there's an overcast where you don't have stars to help you out and you're over, I've, I've flown a lot of hours over that place that you were in, in that region of the country, it is really dark, really dark on a dark night. And so you don't really have a lot of good clues necessarily for where the clouds are and when you're going to enter IMC conditions. So it's just an additional factor when you're flying VFR at night or you, or you need to maintain VMC at night, how much more difficult it is, especially under those conditions, if you have an overcast and you're in a dark part of the country. 
Yeah, it, it was a new moon as well. So, you know, that absolutely was a factor. Yeah. And the final lesson that I bring out of this, John, is that you mentioned that from the time of impact until the plane came to rest was about 75 yards. And it's a factor for people to think about. But when you need an alternate landing site, you really only need about 100 yards to survive because at some point, once your engine stops running or you've lost thrust or whatever the case is, and in your case, it was just icing where you didn't have as much control as you needed. If you can find an open space to where you dissipate that energy over about 100 yards, your chance of survival goes way up. I think most off airport landings do not end in a fatality. Something like 85 to 90% of them do not end in a fatality. Because if you can find just enough space, and that's all you're looking for, you don't necessarily need to land it. You've just got to dissipate that energy. And your crash site kind of reinforces that point. Yeah. I mean, it was on an upslope, so a lot of the energy went into the, uh, the fuselage and my legs and the rest of me. But very definitely, I mean, it was going about 150 miles an hour, according to the, the radar track. Yeah, which is why you needed as long as you did and the upslope. You know, typically you would try to slow your airplane as slow as you possibly can before you went into a, a site like that, right? But in your case, you had no ability to do that because you couldn't, you couldn't control your descent. So a different scenario entirely. Well, John, what else do you think about and what are some of the lessons learned that you can share with us as we listen to your story? I can't think of any additional ones, really. You know, having the, the, a, somebody to discuss it with is, is crucial, certainly for, uh, I won't say for every single pilot, but I, I would say that everybody's human and everyone is susceptible to having cognitive impairment. Uh, and, and cold temperature will do that to you. So I, I did not do good flight planning. I, I must have done some because I was on the Victor Airways. But uh, there's no question that when I called ATC and was making that descending 360 that I had lost situational awareness. And under those conditions, January night or almost night, there's just no question. If you don't know exactly where you are and what you're doing, you get down safely as soon as you can. Certainly for somebody, you know, with 1,500 hours flight time and under those conditions, because you just don't know what you don't know at that point. Yeah, yeah. Well, John, we're so thankful that you survived and grateful that you would come on and tell your story that all of us can learn from your lesson and tell it so candidly as you do so we can learn from your experience and hopefully prevent the same mistake someday. Well, thanks, uh, AOPA. I paid attention. I reviewed and listened to the various, over the years, from time to time, AOPA safety descriptions. You folks do an excellent job, and it's, it's my pleasure to be able to, I hope, contribute something positive. Um, no doubt you did, and I'm sure this will prevent some people from making the same mistake as it'll cause them to pause and think twice about whether it's night VMC conditions or cold weather operations. So just thanks so much for sharing your story with us, John. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for joining us on this dramatic episode of There I Was. Some great lessons learned that come out of this scenario from John, and they all started with cold weather operations that began to short-circuit some of his decision-making. 
And that really was the genesis of things that happened towards the end of the flight. And as we mentioned in the episode, just thankful that John kept his cool under a pretty dire situation and remained flying the aircraft as long as he possibly could. And that ensured his survival. Hey, listeners, join me in thanking Charles Conklin for his donations that help us continue these podcasts. And if you'd like to donate and help us with the There I Was podcast, you can find us at airsafetyinstitute.org. That's all one word, airsafetyinstitute.org. So thanks for joining us alongside our producer, David O'Leary. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening. Thank you.